Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Stonebridge. Good to see y'all. Survived the snowpocalypse today. So, good job. I hear there's more coming this week. So, good news. Um, we're in Romans. So, if you want to start turning to Romans 3. Um, but have you ever read parts of the Bible? And you read it and you go, what? Like, that, that sounded really important, but I have no idea what is going on here. That's the passage we have today. Lucky me. So um, here's how we're going to go about it. We're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to define some of these terms, and then we're going to read the scripture and try to make some sense of it. So I call these terms Christianese, okay? We're going to translate some Christianese. And that's, that's, I'm not knocking these terms. These are fantastic terms. They're biblical terms. They're good terms. We just don't use most of these words in everyday life, okay? Justification, righteousness, propitiation, redemption. We really don't see a lot of those words used, at least how they are in the scripture in our everyday life. So I want to help make some sense of that. So here's where we're going to go. Um, so if you, if you miss everything else, you at least will have the outline. Here's some, here's some math, or some for you mathletes out there, here's Paul's math in this section. He basically says this. Nobody's righteous or nobody is right. That's how we're going to define righteous today. No one's right before God. We're going to see that in nine verses, verses nine through 20. So no one's right. Plus Jesus was right for us or Jesus was righteous for us. We're going to see that in 21 to 26. And because of that, if we trust in Jesus, who was righteous for us, we can, um, we can be saved. So trust in Jesus's rightness, not yours. That's 27 to 30. And then don't just go, great. I trusted in Jesus. I'm done. Fire insurance. See you later. No, thank Jesus with your right living. Verse 31. There's where we're headed. Now, this passage is really dangerous. It's dangerous because once we translate the Christianese, so to speak, you're going to realize that this is really nothing new. If you've, if you've been here, if you've been around the church in general, read much of the Bible, you're going to realize, oh, this is the gospel. Okay, this, this is the heart of what we believe as followers of Jesus. And it's our, it's our focus here at Stonebridge Church, unashamedly. But we can't graduate from the gospel. We have to keep the main thing the main thing because the gospel doesn't just save us. It continues to save us and change us and make us new. So I'm going to pray that, that God awakens our hearts this morning, that we don't fall asleep. Um, I, I mean, I physically hope you don't fall asleep too today. Um, that would be nice. But that spiritually, God would just help us not to fall asleep to this. Just wake up to this, even though it's probably a message we've heard before. It doesn't mean it's any less relevant, doesn't mean it's any less powerful, and shouldn't get us just as excited from the, from the day we believed in Jesus, if you're a follower of him. So let's pray. God, I pray that you would do what only you can, Holy Spirit. Come and, and rejuvenate our hearts with the gospel message, with the good news that Jesus, you came and made us right when we didn't deserve it. God, wake up our hearts. Forgive us for treating the gospel as something, yeah, I already know. I've graduated from that. I know that. I'm moving on. Forgive us for that. Help us to come back to this foundational truth found in your word and be inspired and moved by it today. And it would produce incredible action this week as we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.
All right, the first part of our equation, no one is right. No one's righteous. Here's the Christianese, and then we'll read it. We're going to see in this section, 9 to 20, we've got righteous or righteousness. That just means right or rightness, right in God's sight, meeting God's perfect standards. That's what righteousness is. Then we have law, and law is actually used in the whole section, 9 to 31, used 12 times. So it's pretty, pretty important, pretty key. The law is God's standards, very simply put. It's God's standards, and specifically his standards laid out in the Old Testament. And so when you see the, the uppercase L law used in here, you know he's specifically talking about the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the law written in Genesis, Exodus, Exodus Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, called the Pentateuch. He's, t- he's talking about that in, in particular. But anytime you see the word law, it's God's standards. And then justified means you're declared right or you're declared righteous. It's used four times in here. Um, you're declared right even though you're not right. Um, so a modern day use of this, um, let's, let's imagine for a second that you eat the last piece of Edward's key lime pie. If you've never had Edward's key lime pie, it's a frozen pie you can buy from just about any grocery store. Fantastic. I see some head nods. You know what I'm talking about. At, at our house, it is a cardinal sin to eat the last piece of Edward's key lime pie. Okay, Heather and I love this stuff. So um, let's say that I knew that Heather had the last piece, because let's be honest, I usually eat more than half of it before she can even get around to it. So, um, the last piece is definitely for her. We agree on that. But then I eat it. And I go to her and say, hey, I'm sorry. I, I had to. Okay, I, got, I didn't eat lunch. It was, it was 4 o'clock. I hadn't eaten lunch. I had to eat this piece of pie. What would she say? She would say, no, you're just trying to justify it. That's how we use the term justify or justification. And that's, that's pretty close to what we're talking about here, except... Um, I just wasn't right. I was declaring myself right, even though I was not. And I was just clearly not right for doing that. I haven't done that, by the way. I haven't stooped that low yet. Doesn't mean I won't. Um, uh, in the legal system today, it would be like um, the term acquit. Uh, declared not guilty by the judge. And here, in the scripture, it's, it's similar to these uses. It's, it's declared right or righteous or not guilty by God, the judge. And it's, as I've said this before, but it's a fun little way to remember it, justified is just as if I'd never sinned. So the judge looks at you and goes, not guilty, because he looks at Jesus' perfect record instead. So there's the Christianese. Now let's jump into the passage, 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous or right. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave and use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law, God's standard says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, God's standard, no human being will be justified, declared right in his sight, since through the law, God's standard comes knowledge of sin. Verse 9, he starts out and he's saying, hey, nobody, including Jews, who were, key word were, God's chosen people are right before God. No one's righteous. And Paul proved this masterfully, right? If you're going to prove something to someone, use their own words against them or their own, the, something that, that they really revere. Paul uses the Jewish scripture, the Old Testament, to make his case. The Old Testament law. So he says, he says look at all of these quotes. So if you look at Verse, verse 10 through 18, it's all in quotes. It's because he's quoting all sorts of Old Testament scripture. And you can see those behind me if you're interested in those, those cross-references. But notice the progression. Verses 10 through 12, he's talking about our general sinful condition. Right? No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. Then he dives in a little more specifically. He, he says, but you're not just sinful in general. Your speech is sinful. Verses 13 and 14. Verses 15 through 17. Now your actions are sinful. And then verse 18, he describes the root of the problem. And the root of the sin problem is this, that nobody fears God. And fearing God is also kind of a Christianese of sorts. Um, but fearing God as used here, means to be in awe of God or be amazed by God. And if you're not amazed by God, if you're not in awe of God, if you don't fear God, why would you care about his standards? Now, fast forward to 2020. I would say that regular churchgoers are most like the Jews that Paul's addressing in this section. We get tricked into believing we're better than other people because we got up on a crummy day and showed up at church. We get tricked into believing, oh, I read my Bible every day this week, so I'm better than that person. Or I prayed a bunch, or I attended a connection group, or I served some people, or helped out the poor, shared the gospel, whatever. Are we churchgoers any better off than non-churchgoers? This passage says, no, not at all. Apart from Jesus, we are all not justified. It's just as if we did sin because we did, because we have. We all deserve God's wrath. We all deserve hell. Last Sunday, I decided to go on a bike ride. And I went on a bike ride with my daughter, Joy, who's eight. And I had just got done watching, I, I'll just be frank with you, I just got done watching Chiefs football game where they lost. So I was not in a good mood. And I was like, I'm not going to let this affect my day. I'm going to be a great dad and go on a bike ride with my daughter. But inside, I was not doing well. So we're on the bike ride. It's all going good. We pull up to an intersection. And this intersection is one of the many in Boone that has no marked signs on it. Where's Greg at? Oh, that's no fun. Last, 
last uh, service I gave him grief. But, um, but there's no marking. So you're supposed to yield. Everyone's supposed to yield or something like that. Um, although there's kind of unwritten rules and signs on some intersections I've learned. But roll up to this, this intersection. We're here. And there's another car right here stopped already. Now, if, if you've ridden your bike much around town, you, you know this. You know that you don't like to stop completely and get off your bike. If we're all honest with each other, we roll through most stop signs even while you're on your bike because it's annoying to put your foot down, okay? Let's just get that out. That's, that's just how it is. Um, so I was already annoyed because I'm like, oh. I have to, it's so inconvenient. I have to put my foot down and completely stop. So we stop. That's whatever. I do it. Um, this car was already stopped. So I stopped so that they could go. And then they waved me past. And that is one of my pet peeves. People, they're obviously not a bike rider because they know that I stopped for you. So just go. I, so anyway, I'm thinking this in my head. Usually I just think this in my head. This day... I didn't. I said, just go. And they had their window open. It was, oh man, they gave me a dirty look. Thankfully, that's all they gave me. Um, and uh, off they went. If I see them, cause I will recognize them. Um, I will say, I'm sorry. Cause that was sinful and wrong. Um, here's the point. Um, it's really tempting to read this list in verses 10 through 18 and go, and those, uh, these people are like that for sure. But it's us. It's me. It's, it's you. Verse 14 says their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That sin that I committed, probably several sins, because I was probably idolizing the chiefs, if I'm honest as well. And that showed in my reaction. Probably lots of sins going on there. That sin deserves God's wrath as much as anyone else's sin. I was listening to some Lecrae. He's a rap artist, a Christian rap artist. Um, some of his older stuff, man, it's like, it's like a sermon in a, in a song. Even if you're not into rap, I think you, you might enjoy it. But anyway, the song called Live, Live Free, he was describing sin. And then I was studying this passage, I'm going, oh yeah. Lecrae wasn't too strong. The Bible's really strong about sin. It says, he said, sin is the laugh at his power, the rape of his mercy, the mock of his patience. It says he ain't worthy. I mean, that is strong stuff. But here's, here's what's true apart from Jesus. Nobody's right. No one's righteous, including churchgoers, including pastors. But thankfully, it doesn't end there. We have the next section, which talks all about Jesus' righteousness for us, how he became right for us, verses 21 to 26. Before I read this, though, Martin Luther, a great reformer, Martin Luther, called Romans three twenty-one to 26 the chief point and the very central place of the epistle to the Romans and of the whole Bible. He called this the center of the whole Bible, the most central part of the whole Bible. So let's see this part of scripture that's this important. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith that was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See what I mean? Remember how I started this message talking about scripture where you read it and go, wow, that was probably important. And I told you that this was actually really important. But yet you read it and go, what? See, I, I believe that the gospel message can be and should be understood by a child. But should be marveled at and enjoyed for a lifetime. So let's define some of this Christianese in this passage. Faith. What's faith? It's trust. In our modern lingo, it's trust. It's used eight times. Grace. What's grace? Grace is an unearned gift, an unearned favor. Redemption. Redemption means deliverance at cost. Propitiation. There's a big one. It means turning away of anger. And forbearance means withholding punishment. Now we're going to go into those more, but I want to read this passage 21 to 26 again. And insert our definitions. Verse 21. But now the righteousness, the rightness of God, has been manifested apart from the law, God's standard. Although the law, God's standard in the Old Testament, and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness, the rightness of God, through faith, trust in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, declared right. By his grace, unearned favor as a gift. Through the redemption, deliverance at cost, that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a turning away of anger by his blood to be received by faith, trust. This was to show God's righteousness, his rightness, because in his divine forbearance, withholding punishment, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his rightness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith, trust in Jesus. Let's dive in. There's a lot here. Verse 21 starts with, I think, one of the biggest buts in the Bible. Okay? We, we're not right. We just got that 9 through 20. We're not righteous at all up against God's standard, the law. But we can be righteous If we trust in Jesus's righteousness or rightness for us. That's what he's saying in the first couple of verses there. What's redemption though? If you noticed in verse 24, and we just sang it in a song. He just says, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. He kind of uses it nonchalant. Oh, you know what I mean, redemption. When we don't, we don't really get that. When I think of redemption, I think of redeeming a pop bottle for five cents. Okay, that's not, that, that's not a good correlation here. That's not the type of redemption we're talking about. The Romans, though, that, who Paul was writing to, they would have understood this immediately. And so just to shout out to theologian D.A. Carson, I'm totally stealing this from him. Um, it was common in this culture to borrow money from someone when you would start a business. Let's say, you know, it's been your dream to start this business. You're going to start it up, but you need a little help to get it going. You borrow some money from a rich friend. They give you some money. But let's just say, I don't know. Let's pretend a pandemic shows up. Um, 
and your business just tanks and you can't pay him back. You can't pay him back on time. So there was no declaring bankruptcy back then. There was no bailouts like that. Instead, what you would do is you would sell yourself to this person and maybe your whole family as slaves. And there was no way for you to free yourself of this. But let's say your rich uncle hears about this and they live in the town next, next door and, and they decide, okay, I'll help them out. So they buy you back. They redeem you. They pay the money to the person you lent it from. And then you're free. That's redemption. God bought us back and delivered us. When Paul says redemption in Christ Jesus, he's saying that we were slaves to sin And there was no way that we could free ourselves. But God bought us back and delivered us at the cost of his son Jesus on the cross. And this was rather unthinkable. And you probably heard me describe that just now and start to glaze over a little bit. But this is is unthinkable. Because he redeemed us from the very thing he hates. Sin. Let me me bring this to life a little bit. Imagine you have 100,000 in life savings. That would be incredible. But let's imagine you have 100,000 in life savings and your daughter gets kidnapped and held for ransom for $100,000. You have the ransom. You have $100,000 to pay them. But here's the catch. The catch. What if you worked hard your whole life to advocate for ending abortion in America? Let's say you've done marches, you've done all sorts of things to try to end abortion in America, which I I hope you do, by the way. Fantastic cause, straight from scripture. But let's let's imagine that that you've you've worked your whole life toward this end, and you find out that the kidnapper is actually the owner of the local abortion clinic. You have a choice there. To redeem your daughter by paying $100,000 to a cause that you hate. Or letting your girl continue to be enslaved. See, this is why redemption is so unthinkable and amazing. God bought us back at the cost of his son to the thing he hates. Sin. Now, another critical word in here. And it sounds critical just by saying it, propitiation, okay? Verse 25, um, some other translations besides the ESV, we use the English Standard Version here. Some other translations just get it wrong. They, they say atoning sacrifice or expiation. All of those other definitions focus on the removal of sin. And that's part of it. Jesus definitely removed our sin by going to the cross for us. And it's true that he removes our sin, but it's a bad translation because it makes no sense. He already talked about redemption. Redemption removes our sin. And to be honest with you, it completely castrates this word from its real meaning. And that's not too strong of language. The word focuses on on the removal of God's anger, of God's wrath. Theologian Leon Morris says this, that the wrath is important for Paul is shown by the way he has ordered his argument to show that all are the objects of wrath. Romans 118, 258, 35. But unless Greek word means 
propitiation, Paul has put men under the wrath of God and left them there. It has to mean this. This word means removal of wrath. Otherwise, God is angry at sin. Wrathful towards sin. We read that in Romans 1. In Romans 2, it's all very, very clear. We see that. But then he just goes, I'm happy again. It doesn't work like that. God is consistent. His anger had to be poured out on something or someone. And it was poured out on Jesus. That's propitiation. This is critical critical to the gospel. Otherwise, justification makes no sense either. Think about it like this. How could a judge, a just judge, God, declare someone right who is guilty? You'd, you'd be a bad judge. You go, oh, I know they're guilty, but you're not guilty. Makes no sense. Forgiveness, we understand, right? If the judge just went, okay, you know, all right, I forgive you. But he, he hates sin. So he's not just declaring us forgiven. He's declaring us not guilty. But, but imagine if you declare not guilty someone who is guilty. You just saw how terrible we are in Romans 1 through 3. How could the judge God do that? Here's how. The judge God loved guilty sinners so much that he called the court to a brief recess got his son and substituted his son, took the punishment for us, the guilty party. He was propitiated. He took all of God's anger on himself to the point of death on the cross. But the judge's son didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And then the judge, God, calls court back into session, looks at me, guilty sinner, Matt Yoder, and goes, not guilty. How? How is he able to do that? Propitiation. He turned away God's anger at the cost of his son, poured out his anger on his son on the cross. So when he looks at you, if you've trusted in Christ and says, not guilty, he doesn't see your terrible record. He sees Jesus' perfect record in your place, substituting your punishment. And praise God for that. In verse 23, as we keep moving along in this passage, he summarizes all of Romans up to this point. Everybody's sinned. All have sinned. Completely undeserving of anything from God. Yet, yet, he offers redemption, deliverance at cost, propitiation, turning away of anger, justification, declared right. And all of this, verse 24, is a gift, it says. A gift of grace, unearned favor that we receive the very second we trust in Jesus. The very second you have faith in Jesus, you just get this perfect record. It's a miracle. It's incredible. So that leads us to the last part of our equation. Because Jesus did that, We can trust in his rightness and should trust in his rightness, not our own. Look at verses 27 to 30. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. 
trust. For we hold that one is justified, declared right by faith, apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify or declare right the circumcised by faith. Trust. And the uncircumcised through faith. Trust. 27 to 30 here is the main difference between Protestants and Catholics. And I don't mean any disrespect to Catholics at all. But they're very different in what we believe. And so I just want to clarify some main differences here. It's very significant. So Protestants make Christ's work the starting point and the end point of salvation. All that's left for people to do is to trust and believe in order to be saved. 27 to 30 makes that crystal clear. It's not by the law. It's not by your works. Catholics see Christ's work as the gate swinging open for anyone to start their journey to get right with God through doing good works. And it just misses the point. For us, for Protestants, for Stonebridge Church, Here's what we believe. This teaches very clearly that if we trust in Jesus' righteousness alone, not our righteousness, not our good works, then we will be saved. Now you might be thinking, why why is earning righteousness with God through work such a bad thing? At least, at least you're still doing good stuff and includes includes Jesus in the equation a little bit. Here's why. Here's why trying to earn your right standing with God inevitably falls short. You end up falling into one of two ditches when you do that. You either, one, become really good at looking good on the outside while inside you're a mess. Or two, you try to earn your right standing and realize really quick that you can't measure up, so you just stop trying and live really recklessly. You either become really good At least outwardly, a living right. But inevitably, you still need a Savior. But you see little need for a Savior because you've got it all under wraps. Your motives probably stink and you're probably selfish because you're just doing it to look good. It's a never-ending selfish performance trap. It's miserable. It's never quite enough. You never quite know if you're there. Or the other ditch, if you try to earn your right standing and then just quickly go, whatever. You end up living recklessly for yourself. You may even come to church, but you can't see how or why anyone would try to live up this impossible standard of of what it means to be like Christ. That's why we stand firmly in what it says here in Romans 3, 27 to 30. We trust in Jesus' rightness, not our own. So, Paul's math. No one's right, 9 to 20, plus Jesus was right for us, 21 to 26, equals trusting in Jesus' rightness, not our own. And then lastly, we should thank Jesus with right living. Verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, We uphold the law. See, the gospel 
isn't just good news that you trust in initially. It's what motivates, or at least it should be what motivates and moves us to trust and obey him every day. Moves us to a life of thanks, upholding the law, it says in verse 31. Upholding his standards. Think of the good things that you do for God after you trust in him. Not as a way to get his approval, but as a way to say thank you for the approval you already have from him because of the cross. Pastor C.J. Mahaney in his book, The Cross-Centered Life, said it well. He said, the gospel isn't one classroom among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes take place in. So if you're here today and you're struggling, you're struggling with sin. Maybe you're really hurt by other people and you walk in here today just feeling really wounded. Whatever situation you're in right now, I mean, all of us have a story. All of us have stuff going on. It is a hard world, especially in 2020. We walk in here struggling. Here is the starting spot. Here's where we start for the remedy to whatever you're carrying in here today. It's to focus on the gospel. Find rest and motivation in the finished work of Jesus. And don't take your eyes off of the gospel. Don't take your eyes off of Romans 3, 9 through 31. Let it motivate you, move you by the power of the Holy Spirit to live for him as you look to the cross. Let's pray.